0: Before we get into this episode, I want to give some trigger warnings. This case involves the description of violent murder and mutilation, and the sacrifice of humans and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Alright, that was your warning, so here we go. Adolfo Constanzo is considered one of the most grotesque and terrifying cult leaders of the late 20th century. His victims met their gruesome fates through ritualistic torture. One of Adolfo's methods was ripping out their hearts, boiling them, and consuming it. The remains of over a dozen mutilated victims were found in and around Mexico City, presumably the victims of this cult. In addition to this, 15 bodies were unearthed at a ranch in Matamoros, Mexico. Adolfo's morbid accomplishments stretched beyond a cult leader. He was a self-proclaimed sorcerer, a godfather. His bloody, sacrificial displays attracted wealthy drug dealers, hitmen, and notable people in high society and law enforcement. The downfall of Adolfo Constanzo's cult would come after abducting the son of a prominent Texas family, Mark Kilroy. This would finally bring an end to the narco-Satanists, the Matamoros human sacrifice cult, and Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. To start, I'm going to paint a horrifying picture for you using the prologue of Edward Hume's Buried Secrets. It serves as an introduction to his book about the cult, and more specifically, the murder of Mark Kilroy. The priest he references throughout is Adolfo Constanzo. Quote, In the guttering candlelight inside the temple, the priest squatted and listened to the steady dripping. The satisfaction he should have felt at the sound was absent. He stared at the offering, the duct tape still covering the now lifeless eyes, while the mouth remained free, so the man could scream his pain and terror. As he died except he had not screamed and that was the problem it was important that the offering die in confusion and pain and most of all in fear a soul taken in violence and terror could be captured and used by the priest turned into a powerful angry servant that would wreak horrible revenge on the priest's enemies this was the essence of his witchcraft the dark heart of his religion, Palo Meambe. Always before, the offerings had screamed at the slice of the knife or the hack of the machete, sometimes merely at the thick smell of death that rushed at them when the priest opened the door to his small dark temple, a vile smell that erased any hope of salvation. But this time they had chosen a hard man, a drug dealer, a man who practiced his own sort of violence. He had stubbornly refused to lose control. And even after those eyes had filmed over in pain, even after the priest had covered them with tape to bring on the terror of blindness, still, the man refused to scream. In the end, the priest was the one who cried out, shrieking in frustration at the man who died in silence, even after the priest began skinning him alive. No, the gods would not be pleased with this one, nor could this soul be bent to the priest's will. He lost. For the first time ever, he had lost. Silence filled the little temple now, marred only by the dripping of blood. Slowing almost stopped. He rose and spat on the corpse. Then the priest took a deep breath, opened the door, and called to his followers to get rid of the body next time bring me an american a young american a student someone blonde and soft adolfo told his followers yes padrino his followers agreed eager to please this dark deadly man their padrino their godfather they would do it that night as soon as they buried the body they would drive to matamoros and do it they would find some drunken college student On his spring break and take him here. Adolfo told his flock, Bring me someone I can use, someone who will scream. Shortly after his birth, Mark Kilroy and his family moved down to Santa Fe, Texas. Mark excelled in athletics and academics, placing 14th in his high school class. After graduating in 1986, he attended Tarleton State University with a scholarship for basketball. Sometime later, he shifted his attention to academics and transferred to the University of Texas at Austin for pre-med. In March of 1989, Mark Kilroy and three friends traveled to South Padre Island for spring break. Although their hotel was on the island, the prime location for spring breakers was just across the border in Matamoros, Mexico. At this point, the city was flooded with thousands of young American tourists. Mark and his group's routine was to park their car near the Gateway International Bridge and cross into Mexico on foot. On March 13th, Mark and his three friends crossed the border around 10.30 p.m., where they bar-hopped and attended Miss Tanline contests. At 2 a.m., the group was ready to head back to South Padre Island. However, they were a little split up. Two of them stepped out of the bar and saw Mark talking to a woman from the Miss Tanline contest. They then started walking to a restaurant close to the border, assuming Mark and Bill Huddleston would catch up together. Except, they weren't together, and Bill assumed Mark was with the other two. So he made his way to the restaurant by himself. Mark wasn't there. The three went back to Matamoros and searched the streets for hours, juggling through possible theories of where their friend could really be. Maybe he already walked back to the car. Maybe he went home with a woman he met at the bar. The accounts of Mark Kilroy's last whereabouts vary, but either way, he seemingly vanished. The next morning, Mark's friends rightfully began to panic. They called his parents who then called police and filed a missing persons report. From the start, police knew this wasn't going to be the average investigation. Mark's uncle was the supervisor for U.S. Customs in Los Angeles. On top of that, Kilroy's parents put heavy pressure on police to find him. His father showed up to the police station every day for a month and began handing out flyers on the streets of South Padre Island. A task force was formed in Brownsville, the U.S. town spitting distance from Matamoros. The case gained nationwide attention when it was featured on America's Most Wanted, just two weeks after Mark disappeared. When detectives reached a dead end, they brought in a hypnotist, hoping to get more details from Mark's friends. Under hypnosis, one friend was able to remember an interaction that Kilroy had with a stranger. He said that before Mark disappeared, he saw him talking to a young Hispanic man with a scar on his face, wearing a blue plaid shirt. Because of this new detail, investigators believed that Kilroy had been kidnapped. Less than three weeks after his disappearance, a stroke of luck opened the case up wide. On April 1st, a truck sped through a roadblock set up by federal drug agents. Instead of flicking on the police siren and chasing the vehicle down, two agents hopped in an unmarked Bronco and secretly followed. A few miles later, the truck turned down a dirt road that led to Santa Elena Ranch. The agents passed the road and pulled off, waiting to see what the man was up to. 30 minutes later, he got back in his truck and headed back towards Matamoros, unaware of the agents stalking him. Who were now traveling down the dusty road he left behind. The agents pulled up to a giant metal warehouse where they were greeted by a man who claimed to be the caretaker of the property, Domingo. The agents claimed to be lost travelers, while one agent slightly prodded for info, the other walked around, hoping to spot something incriminating. He walked over to a brand new Chevy and immediately noticed a green dusty film covering the rear seats. It had shaken off from the pounds of marijuana transported in the car. What really alarmed the agent, though, was a statue lying on the floor beneath it, a cement statue with a pear-shaped head. It looked evil, according to the agent, and its eyes and mouth were made of little seashells. The other agent continued questioning Domingo, Who claimed that he just fed the farm animals and watched over the place, but he didn't know who owned the ranch. Not wanting to blow their cover and sensing Domingo was getting nervous, the agents left. The statue the agent had witnessed was a warrior deity of the Santeria religion, known as Alegua. Alegua is viewed as the guardian of the crossroads and thresholds, and it's common for his figure. Be placed in homes behind doors. In this case, the drug trafficker had placed the cement head in his vehicle to protect him, and he believed that his offerings to Alegua were enough to make him bulletproof and invisible to police. That's why he carelessly blew through the roadblock. He truly thought Alegua made him invincible. After all, he wasn't just offering four legged animals to the deity. He was bestowing the ultimate gift, human sacrifice. One of the federal agents knew who was driving that truck, little Serafin Hernandez, a college student in his twenties named after his father, who I will call Big Serafin, for Clarity's purposes. The Hernandez family ran a drug trafficking business that was moderately successful, that was until Big Serafin's older brother, The leader was shot, and their connections died with him. Their nearly 400 acre marijuana farm had been burned down by drug agents as well. Authorities thought that they had ended the Hernandez family. But now, here's little Seraphim driving a brand new Chevy, smuggling drugs with a new ranch and religion. The agents asked around town and quickly learned that the Hernandez family was thriving and very vocal about their priest, their godfather, Adolfo Constanzo. On Sunday, April 9th, federal drug agents raided Santa Elena Ranch and one of the Hernandez family homes. They discovered drugs, guns, but no bodies. At least, not yet. Little Serafin Hernandez and three other gang members were arrested, but they weren't phased at all. After three hours of interrogation from police, they were still laughing at them. The following morning, Domingo, the caretaker, showed up to the ranch unaware of the arrests. Agents were waiting there and quickly arrested him. This was the gang's weak point. Domingo didn't believe in black magic. He didn't believe in the protection of the Hernandez clan, and he was about to reveal the dark secrets agents had been completely unaware of, human sacrifice. Domingo confessed to agents that a blonde American boy had been taken to the ranch weeks ago. Instantly, Mark Kilroy popped into the agent's head. He showed Domingo a photo of him, who confirmed without hesitation that was the man the gang had killed. Confronted with the agent's newfound info about Kilroy, little Seraphim Hernandez was the first to crack. He told them they had lured him into a truck, promising a ride across the bridge to South Padre Island. Instead, Mark Kilroy was blindfolded, bound with duct tape, and driven to the ranch. They promised him he wouldn't be hurt. The next evening, Adolfo arrived with over a dozen of his followers and gathered into their makeshift temple. The followers stripped off his clothes, dragged him inside, where Adolfo began his ritual. He beat, tortured, and sodomized him, before opening his skull with the final blow of his machete. For his final act, he scooped out Kilroy's brains and placed it in a magical cauldron called. The Nanga. Little seraphin stated, We did it for success. We did it for protection. He told us killing would bring us power. He told us our souls were dead. When that happens, you can do anything to anyone. Over the course of five hours, he told the agents his gang belonged to a voodoo sect led by their godfather, Adolfo Constanzo. Quote, Adolfo is very powerful, very smart. He runs our business in Matamoros. He has connections all over Mexico. Movie stars go to him. Congressmen. We did whatever he asked. It's our religion, and if we didn't do as he said, he would kill us. Or worse. Even after confessing to drug smuggling and murder, Little Serafin believed that he was protected and that somehow he'd get out of this unscathed. Two days later, a fleet of Mexican and American federal drug agents returned to Santa Elena Ranch to inspect the temple, which was just 300 meters out behind the warehouse. They'd never thought to look there. This is how the temple is described in Hume's book. Inside the shack, two candles still burned on the floor. Someone had been there to light them that morning. Next to the candles were four small kettles one containing the glassy-eyed, severed head of a goat, another holding a dead rooster. In the others lay a rotting turtle, twigs, coins, gold beads, and the grim statue of legua. Scattered on the floor around these pots were dozens of half-smoked La Palma cigars, empty rum and tequila bottles, chili peppers, and pennies, From a roof beam dangled two bloody wires, twisted into loops the diameter of human wrists, tools for hanging the dead so their blood could be drained. Covering everything in the shack were spatters of sticky, black blood. Most of the objects in there were strange to the agents, but if they recognized nothing else from the bizarre rituals practiced in this place, they recognized the blood. Near the center of the shack squatted a large cauldron, crammed with 28 wooden sticks. They were branches cut in arcane ceremonies and used in the rites of Palo Mayombe. The palos, or sticks, were plunged into a dark liquid inside the cauldron, mixed in with shells, railroad spikes, bones, peppers, garlic, and a bow and arrow scorpions, spiders, a dead black cat, and other objects not readily identifiable, dead things, and pieces of dead things. A black pulpy mass floated in the middle of it all, flecked with fragments of white bone and strands of hair. Recalling Little Seraphin's confession, agents realized the black thing was a rotting human brain. Little Seraphin pointed to the cauldron and said, This is Adolfo's nanga. This is where the spirits live. This is where Mark's brain is. The agents knew exposure to this dark temple would be profound, whether they believed in its magic or not. So they came prepared with a ritual of their own, an exorcism. After a bullet was fired into the air, a curandero charged into the shack and started knocking over sacred objects. Bottles were smashed, bowls and plates kicked, driving the evil spirits away. The Mexican agents there refused to enter until the exorcism was completed. Now, it was time to recover Mark Kilroy's body. Seraphin led the agents to a length of wire running from a lumpy patch of dirt and said, it's attached to his spine. It wasn't a marker. It was so the cult could remove Kilroy's spine once he fully decomposed, then clean it and make it into a necklace. Adolfo and other chosen cult members wore them. Seraphin was ordered to dig up Kilroy's body. It was one of his many physical punishments. While he continued, agents realized something. There were other mounds of dirt protruding from the ground. Exactly like Kilroy's grave. The lead detective wanted to confirm his suspicions. From the grave, Seraphin said, yes, there are more bodies. Agents were here to retrieve one body and had accidentally stumbled into a mass grave. The digging continued, now with a heavy machine and a morgue truck parked nearby. Eight additional graves were discovered. One of them held a stack of three bodies, 13 victims total, including Mark Kilroy. All of them were male. Across the border in Brownsville, Texas, agents descended on a Holiday Inn where Adolfo had been staying. He and his loyal followers had already fled. Now we're going to look into the past of the cult's creator, their leader. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo On november first, nineteen sixty two, he was born in Miami to a fifteen-year-old Cuban immigrant. His mother Delia had two more sons, all with different fathers, and later on a daughter. At six months old, Adolfo was blessed by a Haitian priest who practiced Palo Mayombe, the same religion he would come to utilize in his cult. The priest told his parents, quote, The child is a chosen one. He is destined for greatness, for power. While still in his infancy, Adolfo's father passed away, and he and Delia moved to Puerto Rico. There, she had Adolfo baptized again, this time in a Catholic church to please her second husband but Delia made sure his studies in Palo Mayambe continued, and their Haitian priest became his godfather. This is how Humes describes Adolfo's death-filled childhood. Adolfo Constanzo's earliest childhood memory was not of a favorite toy or a parent's smile, but the gurgling death rattle of a chicken's slit throat, its blood offered up to ancient African gods. He knew a home filled with decay and blood, inuring him to death. His reward for good behavior was the gift of an animal to mutilate and kill. From infancy, Adolfo found comfort in the smell of death and rotting flesh. Not the morning smells of frying bacon and brewing coffee. Blood, death, and belief. Those were the three themes of Adolfo's childhood drummed into him over and over by his mother and his Haitian godfather. There was the power that shedding blood brought. Give blood to the gods and they will answer your prayers. There was the daily embrace of death and decay inside Delia's filthy and bloodstained home, the basis of Paulo Mayombe's magic. Above all, a polero must relish in the stench of decomposing flesh, for he must take the evil spirits of the dead inside him, becoming possessed by them. And finally, there was the firm conviction that non-believers were more worthless than the animals sacrificed at Delia's altar. No difference. This was Adolfo's substitute for a moral code, the path his mother taught him. He learned not to fight children with fists, but to curse them. To skulk through the night. To leave headless chickens lying on their doorsteps. Evil notes tied inside. That was how you got revenge, Adolfo learned. With magic. And if the magic didn't work, the fear it generated worked just as well. It didn't matter if the magic was real or not. It only mattered what people believed. In 1972, at the age of 10, Adolfo and his family returned to Miami. There, Delia supported her family through shoplifting, fraud, grand theft, and illegal sources. She was also arrested for child neglect. One example exposed to police came in April of 1987. Adolfo had already left the nest at this point, but two of his siblings remained. Delia and her children were squatting in a vacant apartment. After the office manager started to notice a foul smell, she went to investigate. She knocked on the door. Delia didn't answer. The manager opened the door and was instantly hit with the smell of feces and decay. She didn't enter. She just called police and told them that something was definitely dead in that apartment. The cops entered and found 27 animals roaming freely. Hens, geese, roosters, and goats. Dried feces and blood covered the walls and floor. Delia had locked herself in an upstairs bedroom. After police threatened to burst through the door, she finally opened up. Another wave of stench hit the officers. Delia's 14-year-old mentally disabled son was lying in a bed of presumably human and animal waste. Her 11-year-old daughter was in an adjacent room faced with the same conditions. Despite subjecting her children to this kind of foul abuse, Delia quickly regained custody of them. Adolfo Constanzo's sexuality was never made entirely clear, but it is known that he loved men, possibly women too. He had many lovers. In Hume's book, he states that Adolfo's priest, quote, initiated him into homosexuality during their times together, which I'm going to assume was consensual. However, considering he'd been teaching Adolfo since he was a baby, Adolfo could have been either molested as a child or groomed through his adolescence. Humes doesn't make it clear when the priest, quote, initiated him into homosexuality. I'm not sure why he used that wording. After graduating high school, he enrolled in community college and dropped out after just a single semester. In 1981, he was arrested for shoplifting twice, attempting to steal clothes and a chainsaw. Adolfo learned through his priest, his godfather, that real money could be made through casting spells for desperate clients. His godfather had amassed a small fortune using black magic to protect the local drug dealers. He had sacrificed animals and grave robbed human skulls. But the real power came from murder, from cutting a beating heart out of a man's chest. This is the knowledge passed down to Adolfo. The bloody path he would eagerly follow. In 1984, this path led him to Mexico City, where he would become the godfather to his cult followers. Adolfo recruited several followers by reading fortunes in a cafe with Spanish cards. It was primarily to make some extra income from tourists, but he knew young, vulnerable men would be seeking out his skills as well. He sucked them in by telling them he was a psychic priest and that his religion was more powerful than they could ever imagine. Adolfo was charismatic and kind to them, showering them with gifts and the promises of wealth. Through ceremonies, he initiated them into his religion and subsequently his cult as well. At least two of those men came to be his immediate lovers, telling them that was how it was supposed to be, According to Adolfo, one would be his man and the other would be his woman, and they'd become powerful and protected in his religion. Over time, he started to treat them as servants rather than lovers, and if they disobeyed him, they would be beaten. Still, every member competed with one another to win Adolfo's admiration. Within a year, he became the most popular card reader in Mexico City. And had gained a small fortune, he went from two small suitcases to an apartment filled with expensive fashion, jewelry, gold, and a luxury town car. Adolfo would drop ten grand in a single day like it was nothing. Of course, he wasn't just reading cards, he was providing cleansing rituals as well. One of his earliest clients would become a devoted follower, after Adolfo saved his real estate business. After a $450 session, Adolfo told the man to hold on to a decaying property in downtown Mexico City. The agent sunk the rest of his savings into keeping the property, following his psychic's advice. Six months later, a devastating earthquake struck the city, killing thousands of people and leaving tens of thousands homeless. Because of this tragedy, Adolfo's client sold the property for a quarter of a million dollars. And now, Adolfo was his savior, and he would do absolutely anything for his godfather. Another follower became induced into the cult seeking revenge on a nightclub owner that had refused to pay him for his performance. For $500, Adolfo prepared a coconut statue of Allegua. And had the performer write the man's name three times on a note doused in chicken's blood. The statue was then taken to a cemetery and placed on a fresh grave. A separate chicken head was set on the nightclub owner's doorstep. A month later, the owner suffered a heart attack and died. Soon, Adolfo's clientele became so large he had to initiate his followers into his religion so they could use dark magic as well. A ceremony was held for each member, in which a chicken was sacrificed, and their skin was cut. He told them, I am your godfather, this is your family. From this day on, you have no god, your soul is dead, you have only me, and you must always obey. Spells were always cast during a waxing moon, using the bones, of a person freshly buried. The most powerful ritual remains came from people who had died violently or had lived a savage life. Those spirits could easily be bent to Adolfo's will. The cult would leave pennies, a headless chicken, and a pool of blood behind as offerings to the spirits. The bones wrapped in black cloth were then brought to a back room and placed at the altar. This is Hume's telling of one ceremony, collected in part from the Colt's followers' descriptions during testimony. He carefully placed the remains before the altar, then he threw himself to the floor as his followers stood in a ring around him, chanting the patua invocations he had taught them for this occasion. Omar covered Adolfo with a white sheet, then surrounded him with four lit candles, as if he was being laid out for burial. This is how the polero welcomes the dead inside him. One of the followers then placed seven heaps of gunpowder on the blade of a sharp knife. He held the blade above one of the candles, then waited, motionless like the others in the room. After long, tense moments, Constanzo's face contorted and turned red, while his body remained rigid, veins swelling in his neck and arms. His fists clenched so hard. Small moons of blood appeared under his manicured fingernails. His face became a sculptured mask of agony, skull-like, and contorted. The dead man's spirit was taking possession of him, moving from the dirt-cake skull to the godfather. Constanzo had told his followers this would happen. Now, it seemed, they were witnessing spirit possession of their leader. Quickly. As his godfather had instructed him, Omar addressed the spirit. Do you agree to work for the godfather, to live in his nanga, to serve him as your master? A voice unlike any of them ever heard squeezed through Adolfo's clenched teeth in reply. The voice was rasping and sibilant, a voice no living thing should have. Yes, I will serve. Had the voice of the spirit said no, it would not serve. The skull and bones would have to be reburied, and the whole process begun again. The human remains were tossed into the iron cauldron, followed by a piece of paper with the dead man's name and several coins. The following was thrown in there as well cemetery dirt, a roasted turtle, railroad spikes, a goat's head, deer antlers, peppers, spices garlic, poisonous bugs, coconut shells, a boiled black cat, and numerous other ingredients. In some of Adolfo's early journals, found later by police, he documented 31 regular clients who paid up to $4,500 for a single ritual. They included musicians, artists, actors, drug traffickers, business owners, and even a veteran Mexican policeman named Ventura. He'd been the first commander of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police, equivalent to the position of an FBI director in the U.S. In 1985, Ventura became one of the most powerful lawmen in Mexico, all while handing over thousands of dollars to Adolfo for cleansings, mystic protection spells, and fortune readings. He and another policeman would become devoted followers. They came in handy when Adolfo started casting spells for powerful drug dealers. The stakes were different with these clients. If Constanzo told them to move drugs at the wrong time or place, his clients would lose millions of dollars, and for that, they'd have his head. Now that he had some officers on his side, they would make sure the shipments were successful by bribing officers to stay away. But the money wasn't coming in fast enough. Adolfo and his colt wanted more, so they partnered with a powerful gang of cocaine smugglers, the Calzada family. The family owned a fire extinguisher business located in a two story building called FM Associates. It was just a front, so they could store tons of cocaine. Adolfo and the Calzada family were formally introduced in September of 1986, three years before the murder of Mark Kilroy. However, months into their arrangement, Constanzo was hungry for more. He believed he deserved far more than what the Calzadas were paying him. He wanted to be a partner and receive half of their overall incoming wealth. Guillermo Calzada, the leader of the gang, didn't think Adolfo deserved it. He declined, refusing to give any more money over to his spiritual advisor. The conversation turned into a screaming match, in which Guillermo ordered him out and to never come back. Adolfo was escorted out by his security guard. He was humiliated and didn't take the rejection well. In Adolfo's eyes, it was a strike at his manhood, his power, and his authority. Days later, he called Guillermo up to apologize, begging for his forgiveness. He explained that an evil force had come over him, causing him to act irrationally, and the evil spell may have passed on to Calzada as well. Adolfo would provide him a cleansing, a special ceremony free of charge, to dispel any negative energy that could remain. The ceremony would be a gift, and he should bring the whole family to participate, or the magic wouldn't work. On April 30th, 1987, seven people of FM and associates gathered in Calzada's living room, including Guillermo, his wife, mother, maid, bodyguard, business partner, and secretary. Adolfo prepared a ceremonial altar with a crate of eggs, several religious figures, candles, and two live chickens. Dressed in white, Adolfo began chanting, and pointing at everyone in the ring around him. The only word they could understand was enemies. He swiftly produced a blade, and suddenly, two of his cult followers burst through the doors with machine guns. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger there, but that is part one of the narco-satanists, Adolfo Constanzo's Matamoros Human Sacrifice Colt. Don't worry, I already have part two recorded. It just needs to be edited. And it will be coming out Thursday morning, 5 a.m. Eastern Time. If you're upset about this, all that I ask is that you don't leave a severed chicken head on my doorstep or curse me in any way. Please don't. So, Thursday morning, you will find out what happens to the Hernandez family, their gang, and what happens to Adolfo and his cult. So, welcome to the outro, where I talk about lighthearted true crime to send you off in a hopefully much better mental state after what you just heard. So, did y'all know that Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock? I bet you didn't. It's not like it's been on every single major news channel for the past 24 hours, but if you're one of those few people that don't know about it, here is the audio of exactly what happened.
1: Will Smith, when like, please, Lord, Jada, I love you, G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it, all right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one, okay. I'm out here, uh-oh, Richard, <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Keep the- my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane Keep jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I could, Oh, okay. That was a... Greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay.
0: The Academy released this statement about the incident. The Academy condemns the actions of Mr. Smith at last night's show. We have officially started a formal review around the incident, and will explore further action and consequences in accordance with our bylaws, standards of conduct, and California law. So, 20 minutes after Will Smith snapped on Chris Rock, he won his first ever Oscar for Best Actor. This is the speech he gave while tearing up a little bit. And the Oscar goes to.
1: Will Smith! Uh, Richard Williams um, was a fierce defender of his family. (laughs) Denzel said to me a few minutes ago, he said, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you. I want to apologize to the academy. I want to apologize to all my fellow nominees. Um, Art (laughs) imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said. (laughs) I look like crazy father, just like they said about Richard Williams. Um, but love will make you do crazy things. Um, thank you for this honor. Thank you for this moment. And thank you on behalf of Richard and, and Oracine, the entire Williams family. Um, thank you uh, uh, Hoking Academy invites me back. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Chris Rock has reportedly declined to press charges. Alright, that's all. I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. Click that little notification bell so you don't forget. Okay. Goodbye.